you know, as a leader here in this church, I just want to take a moment to say how proud I am of our women's community for expressing a heart that is on behalf of all of us to a group of people that we love dearly. And I love how excited people get over Red Bull. That makes me happy. Isn't that good? <laughs> I love it. But no, it's a really big deal. Speaking of which, by the way, uh, just a quick plug. If you are wanting to get involved with women's, I know they're starting groups up and stuff soon. Go talk to somebody at the Info Center sometime today. They'd love to hear from you. Uh, and with that, let's jump into our message here this morning. Um, you know, my wife and I, her name is Amber, we dated for four years uh, before we got married. Three quarters of that, three of those years, was long distance. Uh, and not just like little long distance, long, long distance. She was in San Diego attending a school called Point Loma. I was in Chicago uh, finishing up school there. There were 2,000 miles between us. And this is in that era where there wasn't like FaceTime and we didn't both own a cell phone. So in terms of talking, long distance was really expensive for the two of us. We were poor college kids. Uh, and so we used these things called phone cards, which some of you probably remember. Uh, it was cheaper. And so you could buy a prepaid amount of time that you could talk. And then I just used the phone on the wall to dial it, right? And that's what we did. We could only afford to do this once a week for about an hour or two uh, in there. And so we made a date with each other every single week at 7 p.m. on Sunday. Days. Uh, I would I would sit in my dorm, she'd sit in her dorm, we'd call one another and we'd talk about anything and everything because that was our chance to connect with one another. It was my favorite time of the whole week, right? I looked forward to this. Like I, I loved talking with her and I'd missed her because we were a long ways apart. And so we weren't going to let long distance hold us back or to stop us. At one point in that whole time, we were engaged. We were going to be married. I mean, we're moving forward here. A little long distance isn't going to, going to be a setback for all of us. You know what I mean? We're, she and I were going to do this thing. And so we did. But as time went on, I noticed that the whole long distance thing became a bit of a struggle. Because eventually we were over phone carts. And eventually we were over uh, being far apart. And we were over not seeing each other. And we were over 2,000 miles of distance between and kind of fatigued and just worn out and tired of the struggle that is just trying to connect and maintain that relationship when you're so far apart. What seemed like a breeze in the beginning, it started to become a real struggle as time went on, if I'm honest. And she would say the same thing. You know, I used to serve meals at that time in Chicago at the Lawson YMCA on Sunday nights, same night that I was supposed to be calling Amber. I did that from 4 to 6.30, and we'd take a meal, we'd wheel it down there and serve the homeless population and those that were living at the Y at that time, and then I'd clean it up, and I'd go running back to the dorms as fast as I could so I could make sure that I was there by 7. And on one particular night, we were late. It took us a while, it took a while to clean up, there's some circumstances that occurred, and so I was late, and I'm cleaning everything and trying to get everything packed up and put away, and then I go running back to my dorm room, and I pick up the phone and I dial and I say hello and she is frustrated on the other end of the line. And she begins to tell me that she makes it a priority to clear her schedule to make sure that she can be there at 7 p.m. to talk with me and that it actually hurts her feelings that I didn't do the same and that I was late. And I felt frustrated, right? I was, I was kind of mad because I was like, you don't understand what I just went through to even try to get to this conversation right now. And I feel like you don't understand the amount of effort I'm trying to put into this moment. And then she re-explained her side. And then I re-explained my side. We did this for about an hour and then we said goodbye. And that was our talk for the week. We're so frustrated. I got to the end of that conversation. I found myself thinking, none of this would be happening if we were just in the same city, you know? None of this would be happening if we were just in the same place. I'm tired of this. Like, I'm tired of trying to do this. 
And another week went by, another week went by, but two weeks later, the same circumstances occurred. The cooks were a little late in making the meal, which meant we were a little late in delivering and serving it, which meant we were frantically putting things away. And I am running through downtown Chicago to get back to my dorm. And I run in and I clean up and I, I sit down on the bed and I look at the phone that I'm supposed to pick up and dial and I just don't. I just stare at the phone sitting on the wall. And I know I'm supposed to, about 20 minutes late, 30 minutes late at this particular point in time, but I just look and I go, I don't want to spend another hour in frustration. I don't want to spend another hour fighting or arguing about why this wasn't a priority or why this didn't work. I don't want to spend another hour this way. Some of you who are really sensible are like, well, you should reschedule the time. I know, I wasn't sensible. And I just didn't do it. I kept there sitting there staring at the wall. And it was just amazing to me. What used to be the easiest thing on the planet now suddenly felt like I didn't have it in me. And what's crazy, what I'm talking about here, she's the person that was like the easiest for me to most genuinely love in that season of my life. She's my favorite person, the person I want to talk to the most. Enjoy my time with her, like, and treasure her dearly, right? And yet, I look at the phone and there's this opportunity for me to call her, for me to express love to her, to work through something. And I just don't have it in me to pick it up and to dial and I sit on my bed staring at the thing on the wall because I'm not sure I can at that moment in time see sometimes during times of sustained struggle during times of sustained hardship it can become difficult to be the kind of people who can love other people well you ever feel that you ever find yourself in that space that resonate with you at all? I mean, you ever find yourself in that place where you are, it seemed like the person or group of people that were so easy to love just a season ago, now you find yourself just feeling like you don't have it in you? Like whatever that drive, that passion, that energy, like it's just not there for some reason? Or do you ever find yourself having difficulty genuinely loving others because you feel like life's a little bit of a roller coaster right now and there's just a part of you that's trying to protect yourself from the next loop-de-loop and the next drop? And so when we talk about what it means to genuinely love another person, you're just trying to avoid whatever the next moment is. Or maybe there's just been sustained tension or ongoing conflict and the reality is, is you, like me, staring at a phone on the wall, find yourself looking at what it is to genuinely love another person and going... I'd rather avoid that conflict right now, or I'd rather avoid that tension than enter into it. And all of a sudden, it's, it's not that you could or couldn't, or not that you would or wouldn't, it's, it's that you wonder if you're a person who right now, right here, can. It's like the ingredients are missing or something. Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you ever felt this way? See, friends, we've been talking through Romans 12. Uh, Romans chapter 12. And we started at verse 9 because it was a really important verse where Paul makes this declaration, so to speak, to each of us where he says, let love be genuine because man is that a precious gift and man is that important. Let love be genuine. And so every verse after that is talking about what this genuine love looks like. So we as a church have been saying that's important for us right now. We need that in our lives. We need that in our city. We need that in our politics, in our faith, in our friendships, in our pandemic. Like we need that in all the things that are going on around us, that genuine love, that we could be an expression of that. So we keep telling you guys, go be that. But I wonder if some of you are sitting here going, but that's great. But I don't know if I can. See, in order to be a person who genuinely loves others, you first have to be a person who can. It's a big deal. Sometimes during moments of sustained conflict, tension, or struggle, it can be difficult to be the kind of person who can love others 
genuinely. It can be hard. And friends, if that's you, if you're sitting here and you're like, I feel that right now, I, I get that. You're in good company. You are. You are absolutely and utterly not alone. You are absolutely in the right place. And it's good because we get to talk about some of this this morning. And it's not just us processing this here in 2020. When Paul goes to write in Romans chapter 12, he has this in mind in our passage for today where he's writing about what it looks like, what it is to be a person who can love during times where it's tough to do so. And that's what we're going to journey through. So as we do this here this morning, I want to ask each of us as part of this message here to ask ourselves one driving question. And this question is going to be the thing that guides the rest of this message, the rest of this time here forward. So if you, if you do me the favor, if you would be so kind, if you'd ask yourself this question, it's this. What can I do in the weeks and months ahead to make sure that I love others well? And let me, let me phrase that with greater emphasis on the part that matters most. What can I do in the weeks and months ahead to make sure I can be the kind of person who loves others well? And as we go to journey through that question, I want to point to three different answers, three different potential answers to it that hopefully are a path forward. That if you resonate with this at all, if you know what this is like, or even somebody around you that you'd see a way forward. And so with that, uh, I'd love to read our passage. It's Romans chapter 12. Today we find ourselves in verse 12, where Paul says this, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. I'm reading from the English Standard Version here this morning. It says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. And that leads me to that first answer here to that question. What can I do to be the kind of person that can love others well in the months and weeks ahead here? And it's this. Answer number one is hold the hope that's already holding you. And that might be a weird thing to wrap your head around at first pass, but it'll make sense in just a moment. Hold the hope that's already holding you. See, when I read this, the very first thing that Paul says in verse 12 is what? He says, rejoice in hope. Now, that's a beautiful thing to say out loud. Like, I look at that and I'm like, that's, that's wonderful, isn't it? I mean, I could read that like on a Hallmark card. That's that kind of beautiful thing. Like, everybody, imagine if I just walked out. Everybody, rejoice in hope. You're like, hmm, it's good. But if you really start to think about that for just a second and you recognize the context that he's writing in, I mean, the verse that was before this, he's talking about what it is to be weary and finding yourself in a place of weariness that makes love hard. And now he gets to a spot where in verse 12 here, the context is really, he's, he's talking about when life is difficult, he's going to use the word tribulation in just a moment, when there's an ongoing state of difficulty, and he's telling them rejoice in hope. It makes me, well, think it's kind of strange that he said that, if I'm honest. Because the question that pops into my head, maybe this popped into yours, is this, how do you rejoice in something you don't yet have? How do you rejoice in something that you aren't yet experiencing? Like, the next time you really feel like somebody's in an ongoing, sustained state of hardship, I want you to go to them and be like, hey, rejoice in hope, and watch what happens. You're going to get your head bit off. Like, they're not going to talk to you. They're going to be, like, what a hard thing to say in this particular moment. But you see, the, thing, the reason I think it seems so weird to me, and maybe to us, is because when we think of hope, we think of it through a Western mindset. We think of hope the same way that the Greeks thought of hope. See, the Greek way of defining hope was something along the lines of this. It would, hope would be defined as desiring that that I do not yet have, right? So a hope would be a desire for that which I do not yet have, that which does not, has not yet happened, does not yet exist. This is what hope is. It's a wish. It's this desire for something. 
I mean, think about it for a second. This is how we use this word. My daughter, she's going to have a birthday this week, uh, and she wants a pet so bad. She is like, her lifelong dream is to be a pet owner. And I just see the way we take care of some other things, and I worry for that little pet's security and safety at times. And so that's like not necessarily in the cards, unless she talks to her mom, and we'll see what happens. And yet, she'd say, but I hope for it. What's she really saying? I don't have any reason to believe this will come true, but I wish this would happen, right? She carries this hope, this genuine care and just beautiful heart desire for these things. People buy lottery tickets in hope that they will win a vast sum of money that they do not currently possess. They know the stats, they know the odds, they don't have a strong reason to believe that that will happen, but, we, but I hope, I hope that that'll come true. When I was a teenager, I watched a movie called Can't Hardly Wait, and like many other people in my generation who were also teenagers at the time, immediately hoped that the actress Jennifer Love Hewitt would somehow call me and tell me that I was the thing she'd been missing her whole life. But that didn't happen, because it's just a wish. It's just a hope for that which I desire, but I do not yet have. See, that's the Greek idea for hope, but the Hebrew idea for hope is something different. The Hebrew idea for hope is something altogether different. And Paul, who refers to himself as like the Hebrew of Hebrews, would have had this in mind here when he writes. The Hebrew idea of hope can be looked at the following way. Hope would be this. Because of what I have experienced, I anticipate even more to come. Do you see the difference in these two? This is a really important distinction. I don't want you to miss this. Part of the reason I don't want you to miss this is if you start reading your Bible when you read the word hope and you recognize this is what it's getting at, you're going to find a lot of verses that before seemed beautiful but a little nonsensical make a whole lot more sense to you. Really powerful thing. It's because of what I have experienced, because of what I've come to know, I anticipate even more. See, this is a really big deal. Here's why this is super important, that we, we would hold that at this moment in time. We'd recognize this was what Paul's getting at and why it would matter in our lives right here and right now in 2020. Because during times of ongoing struggle, during times of ongoing hardship, during times of difficulty and tension, the wrong kind of hope can leave you more disillusioned or disempowered than you were to begin with. It can I mean, let's use this, let's look at a really practical example that we have all just walked through and are walking through. When COVID-19 began, I mean, think about this. When, when it began here, like officially, formally, what season of March, like it started before that, but for us, we really felt it probably happening around us and things, or things being affected in March. Despite not having much experience, much former knowledge, much kind of understanding or, you know, about what this was or how this worked, what did most of us end up saying at that particular point in time? How do we express, like, our view on what this was going to look like or be like? Well... This will only be like a couple of weeks, maybe a month at most, and then everything will be back to normal. I mean, how many of us heard this? How many of us said this? We did. It was hope expressed. We didn't have a good reason to say that, right? I mean, this was everywhere, people expressing this version of hope. This is short term. This is temporary. It will be over soon. And so we just need to do whatever the right thing is and hunker down and we're going to be good. It was hope being expressed. None of us remember what it was like to be alive during the Spanish flu. We weren't there. We didn't have good experience grounded in, in what we were doing and who we were and different stuff to make a forecast of how long or how short or something that anything would take. We just desired it to be true because we wished for it, because we wanted it, because it needed to be. So in the beginning, people were frustrated, but they were also optimistic. Let's all just buy as much toilet paper as we can, frenzy the grocery stores, and get through this. Right? 
And then weeks turned into more weeks, and weeks became months, and months became a whole season. This church didn't meet in person for six months total time. That's never happened in its 50, 60-year history. It just kept stretching on. And what did we see around us? Our optimism faded into what? Disillusionment. During this last six months, I have never heard the phrase, what's the point and why bother, more in my entire life. Sometimes out of my own mouth all around me. Why? Because when you hold on to a hope that isn't holding you, you begin to lose it the moment you lose your grip. And all of a sudden, that thing that you wish for just leaves you crashing down into disillusionment and frustration. And it gets hard, doesn't it? It wears you out. See, what Paul's getting at here is that there's a kind of hope that we can rejoice in because it's already holding us. We already have an experience with it, a knowledge of it already, and therefore we can take that which we have, take that which we've experienced, and then anticipate more. Anticipate beyond. Anticipate then some. Think of this, because you know that God will go to great lengths to love you and show that to you, well then you can hope that he'll continue to show that even in ways and times and moments of difficulty and struggle. That's an honest hope that's actually already holding you. Because you've experienced the way God can soften a heart and breathe purpose even into difficult moments, you can hold on to a hope that he is in fact working all things together for good. Because that hope's already holding you. Because you've already experienced something. There's a knowledge, a trust, an experience that's there that allows you to anticipate and hope for more to come. Because you've experienced that whether life is up or life is down, that God does not stop lavishing you with favor, we call that grace. You know that even during the struggle and the difficulty of right now, of whatever your life might look like, that there's a hope that there's more to come and more for the people around me. Them too. And we can hold that hope, not because it's a wish, not because it's a lottery ticket, but because there's, it's grounded in a genuine experience and a knowledge base that we have that allows us to open our eyes and our hearts and say, and yet I want more of that thing. And that hope, friends, is every bit as alive right now as it ever has been. The kind of hope that we hold really matters. This is hope we hold because it's already holding us. If you want to be a person who can love others, a great place to start is by holding on to hope that's already holding you. It's amazing the kind of room it begins to make in your heart. Friends, let me ask just a couple of questions. Two, just to get the ball rolling, and three, the third question is really what I care about. If you're gonna, fran don't frantically like write down the first two, because I really care about the third, and it's this. What has God shown you about himself and the way he loves you already? Think about that for just a second. What has God shown you about himself in your life and the way that he loves you already? What's God shown you about the way he loves those around you and the way he loves this whole great big world? What have you experienced? What have you seen? What has he shown you? What do you know already? And then here's the question I really want you to wrestle with, whether today or the weeks to come, and it's this. What is there that you have already experienced that can open you up to hope for more to come? See, that's not outside of you. That's in you already. It's here now. It's actually holding you even in this moment, whether you realize it or not. What would happen if you held on to hope like that? What would it open up in your heart that you might be a person who goes, you know what, I carry this hope and thereby I give it away and I love. Maybe be a person who can. It's a powerful thing. Wrestle with that. 
I promise to do the same. That brings me to the second answer to the question here, right? What can we do so that we can be people who love others genuinely here in the next weeks, months to come? And the second answer is this. This is a tough one. I'm just going to give you a heads up on this. I know it's tough, but it's important. It's this be, replace because I have to with because I choose to. Replace because I have to with because I choose to. Now, there's a limit to this point. If you're being harmed in some way or being abused or something like that in some way, this isn't a great point for you. But generally in our lives, when we are facing moments of difficulty, struggle, and hardship, this is huge. Replace because I have to with because I choose to. Look at the next point or the next thing that Paul says in the verse, right? Next, after the comma, he says what? Be patient in tribulation. Now, the idea of tribulation, that might be lost on some of us. We don't use that word a whole lot. It sounds very much like something out of Revelations or something that we would talk about. The idea of tribulation, it can mean a variety of things. It can mean persecution. It can mean affliction. It can mean ongoing struggle or difficulty. But here's the point. It's basically saying this isn't just a singular moment. This isn't a singular instance. This is a season. This is an era of your life where things are hard, where you're struggling, where things have gotten difficult. This is what tribulation would be in this. And this is why Paul in this moment speaks to the phrase, be patient. But what he's using in that word, be patient, is the word endure. That's what's being translated as patient. It's the word for endure this. He's speaking actually about endurance. He's saying, endure tribulation. That's a tough thing to tell somebody, but it's an important one for Paul. You see, for us, when we approach the idea of enduring something difficult, we usually approach it like the word endure is passive. And here's what I'm getting at with that. It's like, this happened to me. It wasn't my choice. It's not what I wanted. But now it's my cards I've been dealt. And so I have to do this. I must. I just have to get through it. This happened. I don't like it. And now I just have to, have to get through it. Right? That's how we approach it. It's this kind of passive thing where it's like, this has been thrust upon us and I just kind of need to just keep walking forward until this is over at some point in time. This happened. I don't like it. But the truth is, when we function this way in our lives, this leaves us defeated from the very get-go, doesn't it? And it leaves us living our lives as victims of that which we can't control. Here's the hard part about this. Sometimes that's true. Sometimes there's things that happen to us that are terrible, that shouldn't have. Sometimes things are really, really difficult. The hard part is, even though that's true, living ourselves in a state of victimhood on an ongoing basis doesn't create a life. It actually starts to hurt us. There's something very powerful about stepping into the place where we move from, I have to, to I choose to. This is what separates me from long-distance runners. I don't understand you. If you're a long-distance runner in here, I don't get you. It looks like you're just choosing pain for a long state of time so that you can get to a place that you could have gone in a much easier way. I do not get it. Like, I've tried because I've thought, wow, that sounds like discipline and intense and rigor and maybe I'd, I'd get in such great shape. And then like mile three, I'm like, knees hurt, chest hurts, everything hurts, why? I don't know what to do. Like, and yet, go talk to anybody who's a long-distance runner. See, I look at it as I, I have to. Somebody's subjecting me to this. Why am I? I've got no reason. There's no purpose. What am I doing? Talk to a long-distance runner, though. They're not like, I have to. They love it. They have found a reason and a way to take something that is ordinarily painful and ordinarily a struggle and actually turn it into purpose. And they choose it, even though it's really hard for the rest of us. And at some point, they even become sadistic and use the word, I enjoy it right? And that's a funny way of talking about, it. you know, a more powerful illustration that is super deep. 
during the Holocaust, there were many people, whether they were prisoners of war or people in concentration camps that were forced to do long, long marches during really cold, cold stretches of time uh, in a state of utter malnourishment where many people died and some survived. And researchers have looked at that whole thing, which is a horrible tragedy. It's like an awful moment that was absolutely thrust upon people and people were absolutely forced in, in chains and a whole bunch of other things to do so. But they've looked at this and they've asked the question, why have some people died and why did, what, what allowed some people to keep walking? A lot of people laid down on the side of the road and said, I can't do this, and just that was the end of their life for them. And then there were others that continued walking. So researchers in modern day have been like, what is this? What are the factors that contributed to people's ability to, to keep moving? And there's, there's several of these factors. They're called resiliency factors. But one key deciding factor for people was that for many of the people walking, there was some person that they still hoped to see, some experience they still hoped to have because of what they had experienced already in their past, what they longed for more of, or some purpose they chose to live out of. And in doing so, they found a way to no longer be forced to take each next step, but rather that each step was them living that purpose, taking a step towards that which they desired more than that which what they were forced to do. I can't wrap my head around that. I have no idea what side of the coin I would fall on when given the, given the same circumstances. None of us do, but the lesson is powerful, isn't it? See, when Paul speaks of endurance, he speaks of it actively. Friends, you bring purpose to what you endure. Hear that. That's a really big deal. If you're going through hardship, I'm not saying you should, or I'm glad that that's happening, or this is your choice because you chose to do something difficult. I'm just saying when this is happening, you bring purpose to that which you endure. You regain your sense of control and your sense of purpose when you choose to endure difficulty for the sake of something that matters more than simply getting by. Powerful lesson for life. This is what Paul's getting at here when he says, be patient in tribulation, endure in tribulation, to actively step into this, to choose it. During times of ongoing hardship or sustained conflict or mounting tensions, it's difficult though, isn't it? So let me ask you a question here, a series of questions. If you're there, if you're in that state, if you're having a hard time, if you know what it is, what is there that makes the enduring worth it for you? Let me think about that. What is there that you as a person are choosing to endure for? I mean, if you're going to endure a difficult season of time, here's the question I care about most. What is there that so matters to you as a human being that you would choose to endure it? Is it someone? Who is it you're caring for? Is it growth of some kind? What is it that you hope is being built in you? Is it purpose? What purpose are you living out? What is there that you so want to see or experience that you would do endure difficulty to get there and see it? What is that for you? It's going to be different for all of us, but you see, friends, that is the path that takes you from having to to I choose to. It's the path that roots your life in something more than getting by, but that puts trajectory in front of you and purpose in your steps, even in the hardship, even in the most difficult of circumstances. And it becomes the thing that opens you up even during times where it's tough to actually love others well 
Because life becomes about more than just getting through. There's something bigger, something better, something more beautiful you're after. This is powerful, friends. Please don't let this be lost on you here this morning. What is that for you? Which brings me to the last answer to that question. It's this, don't let emotional fatigue, third answer, don't let emotional fatigue turn into spiritual silence. Paul says, but persist in prayer. Some of our Bibles will say, be constant in prayer, right? And the word that they're trying to translate though, where it's persist or be constant, just know this, in the grammar, it is less about quantity than it is about continue to pray when it gets difficult. I say that because some of us, like, we're like, okay, so we need to just be praying all the time. And then we use so many words that we think that like the more words we use, the greater God's odds of hearing us are somehow. No, it's just saying when, we get, when it gets difficult, what Paul's got in mind here is that's the time when it seems like many of us, we start praying and then eventually during sustained difficulty, we stop, don't we? He's saying persist in it. Keep going. You know, there's a season in my life where I was having a very hard time with things and just really frustrated and struggling. And I just stopped praying altogether. It's weird though, isn't it? Because isn't it like we get so fatigued in the waiting room of difficulty that we then just decide not to talk to the doctor when given the opportunity? But I did. And I just stopped praying. I went silent. I didn't pray for a couple of months. I think I told people that I did because I was embarrassed that I hadn't. But I... I didn't, I didn't know what to say. I just felt like, you know what? This wasn't like there's some sin issue or something that I'm hiding from. A lot of times when people stop praying, they're like, what are you hiding from God? I just felt like I'd already said what I wanted to say to God and he'd already heard it and I was tired of waiting for the circumstances to change. I'd be like, I already left you a voicemail. Like, check that one. That's kind of how I thought, you know, in that particular moment. So I just didn't. And then on one particular day after a season of time, because the conflict just got worse, I, like life just droned on. I thought I could just get through it and eventually this would be behind me, but all you do is just take it with you, you know, everywhere you go. So finally, I came to a point in time where I decided I'm going to pray. And I didn't say words out loud. I got out a journal that I hadn't written in in like years. And I just wrote out the first prayer that I had prayed in a very long time. And in that moment, my circumstances didn't change. And in the weeks ahead, they didn't either. But you know what did begin to happen? I think I realized the moment I started writing that prayer that I had somehow come to believe that God wasn't a part of this story that I was part of right now. That where I was at in my life, God wasn't actually with me in this. And I think it's because I hadn't decided to include him in that despite the fact that he was always there. And my whole world had shrunk to just the moment I was living in. And there was something about praying that reminded me of the larger story that I was in fact connected to that God has been telling all along. And there was a part of me with that that said, I trust this difficult, weird moment into your story and trust you to tell it. And I don't know how it'll look, but I'm here. Give me strength. And all of a sudden my heart began to open back up and it was no longer a sense of spiritual silence in me, but navigating difficulty with God alongside which that's a powerful change in a human being's life. It was for me. Friends, have you let emotional fatigue and difficulty in your life become your spiritual silence? Have you let that quiet, that which is within you in such a way that it feels like God has left the building or is distant somehow? Can I give you a question that's just a way to help find your way back? And if you struggle to even embrace it or believe it this morning, maybe just ask it in faith. It's this. If you knew God was with you, and if you knew that he was listening, what would you tell him? That's it. If you knew God was with you and you knew he was listening, what would you tell him? My challenge is 
do so. If it's weird to pray out loud right now, then write it in a journal. Do whatever it is that you would do, but do so. You'll find that this moment is a part of something larger and that there's a God with you in it all. And it just might open you up to be the person who in the weeks and months ahead can love others well. You know, as we move to the close of our morning, I think some of you might be wondering, because this is what I would be if I were sitting in your shoes, if I'm honest. I'd be thinking, okay, this seems really helpful as far as like, okay, when navigating hardships, this is important. But I would still be sitting here going, but Ryan, like, how does this help me actually move towards being a person who can genuinely love others? Like, how does this work? And for right now, rather than me simply go, okay, let me, let me write this out and let me create, like, let me show you how it all works together. Let me instead just take you back to the moment that we started in here today when I was sitting on my bed staring at a phone on my wall. Can I tell you what my wise self wishes I could go back and tell that person right now? Wouldn't that be a joy? Don't we wish we could do that on a regular basis? I wish I could take what I know now, go sit on the bed next to that person and go, look, I know you're frustrated right now, but can we have a talk? Can I tell you something that you're going to learn the hard way over a long period of time? And I think what I would tell myself if I sat there is, you know, hold on to a hope that's actually holding you. I'd ask that person sitting on the bed, think about who she is. Think about what you've experienced with her. Think about how much you love her. Think about the fact that you know that you are happier that she exists in this world just because she's her. You think the world's a better place just because she's somehow in it. And think about the moments of conflict and struggles that you have walked through and how there has always been love there in the end. And let that fill you with a sense of what you have experienced that you can find hope that's already holding you for what you will. And I'd look and I'd go, and let's talk about have to. Because <laughs> you're staring at the phone on the wall like you have to call her because you have an appointment at seven. And if you don't, like, you know, hell hath no fury. The truth is, the only reason you're choosing to call her is because this is the person you love most genuinely. You're choosing to call her because you want to talk through things, and you're choosing to call her because you want the kind of marriage that at the end of the day meets each other in the end and is able to talk through conflict, not avoid it. So there's purpose here. What will you choose? And I'd say, before you pick up the phone, though, like maybe pray <laughs> and ask God for honesty for compassion and grace for you and her and for wisdom and dial you're gonna be fine <laughs> friends it's a powerful thing where what you don't have at one moment in you can be there the next you just have to tap into that it hasn't left you you're not a lost cause this is not a lost season of time there is no moment that is lost in the grand economy of god it's there and the truth is, we're going to find ourselves in moments of difficulty, and we're going to find ourselves in moments of sustained tension, and we're going to move into a month called November, and it's going to get real. And you're going to walk through it, and so am I. And then we're going to walk through December, and then we're going to walk through January. And there's going to be seasons and times in our life where we look and we go, wait, but we're the church. But the love of Christ is powerful in us, and the Spirit moves through us. And there's something powerful that empowers us to life and a gift that we bring to this world. It is all there, and it's needed. You're needed. We're needed. So will you take the steps in the season to come to be the person, not just who tries to genuinely love, but to take the steps even now to be the kind of person that can.
So as people who gather as the church, I ask you, would you hold on to a hope that's already holding you? Will you choose to replace, it's a hard choice, but will you choose to replace because I have to with because I choose to? And will you refuse to let emotional fatigue turn your season into a time of spiritual silence, friends? Because there are real people in your life and there will be real people to come in your life that need to know that genuine love is real. And it is the gift that you uniquely, that I uniquely, that we uniquely have to give away. It's in you. It's there. I trust you. And I'm excited to do this with you. Let's pray. God, we come before you today. And for those of us that are in a season of hardship, that are having a hard time and just feel like it's not in us right now, I pray for the way back. God, I do. I pray that it not just be wishful thinking or Western hope, Lord, but, but a hope that's already holding us. God, open our eyes to what you have done in us, through us, around us, to what we know is true of you, and let it fill us with a hope for more to come. Let it open our eyes to it all. God, I know it's a difficult thing when difficult circumstances happen around us and that it can feel like we're subject to them, but help us to find the courage to find a way to choose. Help us to find the purpose or something better, something bigger that we would live for that can empower our steps and give us trajectory and path. And God, I thank you that we can pray to you. And I thank you that you listen. We're here and we're listening for you. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Friends, it's good to be with you today. And I hope to see you soon.